Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we got another Seafood Innovations episode for you. We are looking at a very cool piece of fisheries technology that helps. It's called Hook Pod and it helps reduce bycatch in seabirds. And it is super cool how it works. We are joined by the CEO of Hook Pod, whose name is Becky Ingham. And she was gracious enough to connect with us at the Seafood Expo and then come on the show to talk about this product. But before we get into that, as I always do, I want to remind everybody to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to make sure every episode gets automatically downloaded to your device as soon as it's available. And if you're interested in keeping in touch with us, then you can do that on either Twitter we're at Aquademia Pod or on our website, which is globalseafood.org slash podcast. That's right. And if you don't mind, we would love it if you would take a minute or two to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen on whichever platform. It really helps us out and we really appreciate everybody that's done that. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation that we had with Becky and we'll talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. Okay, so we're sitting down with Becky Ingham, who is the CEO of Hook Pod. How's it going, Becky? Very well, thank you. So, Maddie, you weren't there, but on the last day of Cena, which is like pretty close to the end, I was sick as a dog. Um, I, I was very, I was like super nauseous and barely, hold, barely holding myself up. But Becky came by the booth and showed us this new product that she was kind of walking around and showing people at the seafood show called Hook Pod. And I just thought it was one of the coolest things ever. I may not have expressed it at the time because I felt like I was going to vomit at any moment, but I thought this was so cool. And I was really excited to connect with her afterwards and, and set up this new uh, seafood innovations episode because it's a really cool product that work. That's really cool how it works. And it's really an important issue that it's addressing. So before we get into Hook Pod and, and what it does, Becky, let's talk about you. Who are you? Where'd you come from? You know, what's What's your story? How did you get into the industry? I'd like to start off by saying you did a very good job of covering that up because I never would have known you felt like that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> what, the, what a professional. <laughs> I, I had the, the last night I was there, I just started to get these really, really bad stomach pains and nausea and it, just, it, it got worse and worse throughout the last day. So <laughs> I'm so Not glad good. I got through it. I was sick for like a week afterwards too. I don't know what it was. Oh, not good. Not good. Um, yeah, sorry. So back to your question. I um, sort of fell into this, really. I mean, it was uh, kind of knowing knowing a few of the people who were involved in it at, at the outset. My, my background was I did marine biology and oceanography and always wanted to work on the conservation side, um, but really struggled after I'd done my first degree to actually have any openings. It was um, as a lot of people are, you know, I was I was really financially strapped because it costs a lot to go to uni. Um, yeah. And rather than being able to do the, the voluntary stuff that was the sort of general route, I had to find work. So I ended up then getting some funding from the Fishmongers Society, which is a, an organization in, in the UK. And that allowed me to do a master's degree, which was in um, uh, shellfish biology and aquaculture, actually. So that kind of took me a little bit down the fisheries route. And from there, I ended up being an observer in the Falklands on um, both squid jigging and squid trawler boats. And that was around the uh, late 90s when really the 
issue of seabird bycatch first started becoming quite sort of front and center in people's minds. Mm. Um, and particularly down in the Southern Oceans, it was a big deal. So we would have um, observers out on the boats, as well as us being the fish observers, we would have be tasked sometimes with some of the seabird recording. And having finished that, I did that for two four-month contracts. And having finished that, I was lucky enough to get a job with Falkland Conservation, which kind of took me exactly where I wanted to be, um, which was working hands-on with seabirds. We were doing lots of work with the breeding biology uh, of penguins and albatross. It was fantastic. Um, but obviously, one of the key things was watching those figures decline. And at the time, it was quite frightening what was happening with those populations. Oh, yeah. Um, so we did that for 10 years. We had a fantastic team. I did it for 10 years. They're obviously still doing amazing work down with Falkland Conservation, but I've, I've moved on. Um, and one of the guys that I worked with while I was down there was a um, um, brilliant seabird biologist called Dr. Ben Sullivan. And he had this kind of concept. He, he initiated a lot of the seabird mitigation devices that were used initially. So, um, you know, just using streamer lines and things around the, the backs of the, the long liners and working with the fleets. And actually the South Georgia fishery was one of the ones that uh, we, we managed to kind of really sort out in that 10 year period. So I'd done a lot of this kind of work with Ben. And then we went we went our separate ways. He moved to the UK and worked for the RSPB. Uh, I stayed in the Falklands for another few years. And then actually I followed him because my family is from the UK. Um, so he was in Cambridge with his wife and children. I moved back to Norfolk. And in that kind of interim period, we, we both ended up working for the RSPB. But he came up with the concept of uh, protecting the hook during setting, which would mean you protect the bird. Um, and from that, he uh, liaised and met up with a couple of incredibly clever inventors and biologists from Devon called Pete and Ben Kibble. They actually then came up with the original concept for the pod, which has evolved quite a lot over time. But it was that that idea of something that could be released underwater so that the, the hook wasn't available. And they did probably funded by a few uh, individuals and a little bit of kind of grant funding back in sort of 2000 and. 10 to 12, I suppose, they did the first sort of bit of getting the hook pod up and running. And they then found a an investor who wanted to come in and fast track this. So at that point, hook pod, the company was set up. And uh, I came on board at that point because, um, well, basically, Ben kind of suggested to me, would I be interested? And I said, oh, I can't because it's in Devon and I live in Norfolk. Um, and then they couldn't find the right person in Devon. So they opened it up and said I could be I could be based from home. And uh, yeah, that was back in 2013. So I've been here ever since. <laughs> I, uh, before we get in a little more into the hook pod and how it works, I want to talk about the seabird problem. So at what point do seabirds get like tangled up? Because you say you, know, you protect you protect the hook. So you reduce the interactions with the seabirds. Is it when the hook is going down and they're diving in to like catch fish and they get caught on the hook, is it when it's being you know let out from the boat? How, at what point do, do the birds get entangled in the, in the gear and how and how does that usually happen? Okay, so I mean, obviously it happens at different times and in different ways on the type of fishing, but the hook pod right. is specifically designed for pelagic longlining, um, which is it's different. There's two types of longlining. One is pelagic, which means the the gear is you have off the back of a boat is the easiest way to picture it. And you have a big winch, which light, which puts out one big, long main line. And then you have crew stood with clips, swivels and a basket full of branch lines, which they then they 
clip on one of the, the branch lines, the main line is constantly going out at about five, six knots all of this time. So they'll clip on um, a branch line. They'll then get that from the basket. They bait it and they, when they're using hook pods, that's the point they clip it up into the hook pod. But normally that gear would then be going and it's usually they work on a kind of ping basis. So every six to 12 seconds, there would be an automated ping and they get another line and it goes out. So it's a constant process. And the main line can be anything up to 50 miles and they can have kind of anywhere between 1,500 and four, 5,000 hooks, depending on where they're fishing. So it's at that point where you've got all of that bait on board and you've got these guys actively then throwing every five or six seconds, throwing a piece of food effectively for seabirds into the water. But any of the tube nose birds, so your albatross and your petrels, which have got an incredibly uh, well-adapted sense of smell, they'll hone in on that. Um, and it's at that point when the gear is being set that they're at most risk. Because obviously, however much uh, you, you weight the gear, it's going to have kind of 10 to 12 seconds where it's sink, sinking down through the water column, where it's within the diving depth of those seabirds. So they dive down, they take the bait, they get hooked. And it's at that point that it's really bad news for them because the gear is going out. It's being weighted. It's going to hang there in the water. And it's actually the drowning that kills them rather than the incident of being hooked. You do have some bycatch on the haul but it's very, very limited. It's not often it happens, and it doesn't tend to result in any mass mortality of seabirds, simply because it's coming up. So they'll get hooked in that 10 to 12 meters seawater or seconds that it's the water. Okay, cool. So so then how, let's talk about hook pod then and how it helps prevent that. So what, this is this is super cool. Uh, Justin is going to be so mad that he's not here because he would love this. But um, <laughs> ex explain to our listeners how it works because it's a really neat concept. Can you just kind of, It's I know it's hard without visuals. You actually had one at the show on the floor to show us. But um, can you explain, try to explain in a way um, how it works, how it kind of protects that hook? until it gets to a certain depth. So if you've never seen one before, if you imagine a kind of quarter of the size plastic polycarbonate Coke bottle shape is the easiest thing to get in your head. Um, <laughs> and at the very bottom of that is a pair of spring-loaded doors. Um, and what happens is it sits on the branch line that is going out with each of these, each of these branch lines. So there's one per branch line. And as the crew member will put the bait on the hook, they will clip the hook up through these spring-loaded doors at the bottom of the device. So the hook then can't go anywhere, and the barb of the hook is retained in the body of this polycarbonate capsule. Um, that obviously means that nothing can get hooked on it. It can't catch anything, um, and it's completely safe. It's completely disarmed, that hook. And the bait is still exposed, right? The bait's not inside it. Yep. No, the bait, it's the yep. only bit of it that's inside it is the very barb and the tip of the hook. And then the bait will be sat a little bit further round on the hook, so it's hanging free in the water column. So the whole gear yeah, then goes down. If you go to hookpod.com, you can see a picture of it and you can you can get a visual of kind of where the bait would go and where the pod goes on top of the barb. So I, I recommend people do that. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. And actually, if people are interested, we have, I think it's probably quite difficult for people to find. But if you go onto YouTube and look for Hookpod channel, there's actually, there's some explainer videos and quite a lot of uh, sort of close-up stuff, which shows you exactly what's going on. So nice. there is some, there's some good footage out there. Um, but the really neat bit, the, the, the kind of bit that's taken this from being a good idea to a really clever invention is the, um, and it's it's patented, and the guy, Ben Kibble, who invented it was um, 
put forward. He was the only UK nomination last year for a uh, European pa- uh, Inventors Award from the European Patent Office, which, I mean, I think wow. is quite incredible. When you think of yeah. some of the awesome stuff, you know, that people are inventing, the fact that it was the hook pod above all of that that, that kind of got through. Um, so, yes, the, this mechanism is it's a little chamber which fills with air, and on one side there's a piston, and another there's a coil with um, a spring. And as it sinks down in the water column, this little chamber that's in the middle of the hook pod, the pressure on it will increase, and then when it gets to 20 metres, the piston will have got close enough, that the spring will have compressed enough that the piston will fire the opening system. The whole device then opens out, so it's kind of tent-shaped, and the hook will fall out, releasing it to start fishing. And the the really clever part is by altering the composition of that spring, we can actually make the hook pod open at different depths. So the standard one is the 20 meter that we're currently using in uh, Brazil, South Africa. Um, It's the sort of normal one. And then we do also do a 10 meter one that's been requested for some of the fisheries in New Zealand where they're, they're setting their gear very shallow. So it's quite clever in that it can be adapted to any fishery. Um, but it's also completely reusable. So the great thing is when they haul that gear up, they just simply flick it to remove any water from inside that little pressure chamber, um, close it with one click, and then it goes back into the same setting basket that they would be using with all their other gear. So it can be used time and time again as well. So you said that they could have up to like 1,000, 1,500 hooks at a time out in the water, Do and they would get one pod for each hook, right? Yep. That's a great model yep. for you. Well, quite an important thing. I did want to get this point across. It seems like a fairly good time to do it. HookPod is set up as a company uh, and we have investors and we have shareholders. um, And obviously that model, people kind of think, oh, well, you know, everyone's in it to make a lot of money. I have to say that every single one of our shareholders has not put their money into this to actually kind of get a return. Mm -hmm. We are really looking to get this taken up across world fisheries and stop seabird bycatch in long lining. It's completely possible. You know, we've got the technology now to do it. So this company isn't about making money. And as soon as we start getting the kind of scale of economy to get these things cheaper or produce cheaper, um, we're going to be passing that on to the industry. This this isn't about bringing in the big bucks. This is about stopping seabird deaths. That is amazing. So you mentioned that you have different customers in South America, South Africa, New Zealand. Are people using this like all around the world right now, like on most continents? Um, not at this point in time. We have got people starting to do demonstration trials and showing interest in it. Um, I'm sure you guys know eliciting any form of change in the fishing industry is not easy. <laughs> it's particularly That's hard. Sure. Yeah. And it's particularly hard when you're broaching those subjects where a lot of these fisheries, um, they don't really have the data on seabird bycatch. There's not really the will there to find out that there's a problem. So why would there be the will to spend quite a lot of money on solving something that a lot of people are denying happens? So it's mm-hmm. a real slow burn. Um Especially because it's sort of adding, I mean, it's definitely worthy of it, but it's adding another step to their workload. But once it it seems like once it's set up and once it's on the lines, then it's good to go. But it's just that that first step. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the pod is once it's in the gear, it's really durable and really reliable. So it's not something that they're putting on and taking off in between every set. It will be on that gear, and we've got some out in New Zealand that have been in use for more than two and a half years. So 
we still don't have the volume of data on enough pods to say we will give you a two-year guarantee, for example. But we're pretty confident that that's sort of what we'll be looking at in a year or two's time. So, I mean, in terms of the take-up, we've got we've got good take-up and positive responses from New Zealand. Um, we've probably got, I think at the moment, I think we've got seven or eight of their commercial tuna longliners using it on a full-time basis. And the feedback that we've had from these guys is that it really works. It's really effective at Seabird Bycatch. And there is certainly, um, from what I've seen as of May last year, I think was the last figures, they started this use in January 2020. As of May last year, uh, there had been no birds hooked in on those vessels. So I think they'd had one small petrel that had got entangled in like the, the line where there's a loop in the line but it hadn't been hooked. So, I mean, the fact that we're on zero, zero seabird bycatch in an area like New Zealand, which is a real hotspot for, for having those birds, is, is brilliant. And it's just proof that, you know, this does work. We can stop this. Other areas we've got, uh, we've been approached for trials in South Africa where, where uh, the government's kind of gone, if you can prove that the hook pod doesn't catch birds in the daytime, they're looking at potentially altering their fishing regs to allow people to fish uh, in the daytime as well as nighttime. So that immediately starts to come with a commercial benefit to fishermen. Um, we've had trials in Brazil where we've had fishermen who really like it and really want to use it, but there is zero regulatory framework in place. So there's absolutely no incentive. And this is why it's difficult to get this level of, of global kind of take up. But there's there's a huge amount of work to do. And we're, we're talking to China, we're talking to Taiwan, we've got some talks in Korea um, you know, it's all happening, but it's a very, very slow burn. Yeah, that's something that we've seen a lot when we look at kind of new technologies in the fishing industri industry, uh, as opposed to the aquaculture industry. Is there a little bit more, I don't want to say like there, there's pushback, but it's one of those, well, we've never had to do it this way. So why would we change? And, you know, it, there's a more of, of an attitude of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, but, you know, you, you need to find a way to spin it of like, well, how many, you know, how many times do you, are you pulling your hooks back and there's a, either the bait's gone or there's a, a bird on it. And you, <laughs> guess what? That won't happen anymore. Um, you know, like I, until they can see the other side of it, how much of a benefit it is to not be having these interactions with the birds, they might not realize how big of a problem it actually is. Right. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, you talked about mostly about the two main species of birds, petrels and um, what is it, cormorants, that are the biggest yeah. ones. But you also mentioned yeah. a bunch of different other seabirds that you, you worked with in the future. I know you said you have people in South Africa using these. Do the fishermen down in South Africa have any issues with penguins? The because penguin I feel be like the, that would be a, more of an issue if they did, because like the depth thing wouldn't be as useful, right? Because they're they're in the water. Yeah. So I'm just curious so, if that's if that's something that's come up. Yeah, it's a funny one. And I think a lot of this depends on where you are in the world, because yeah. wherever you are geographically, you've got slightly different species. And this actually equally goes for turtles. Um, so we've got oh, yeah. slight, slight evidence from Brazil where um, some of our trials kind of indicated that there's I mean, there's really high turtle bycatch in Brazil. Um, so there wasn't zero bycatch at all by any means on the hook pod hooks, but it was about a quarter of the bycatch of turtles that you were getting on standard gear without a hook pod. So we don't really know why that is. And at the moment, we've got no scientific evidence to say that that is statistical or that it's actually happening. But it's something that we're really keen to look at because my 
suspicion would be that most penguin species and most turtle species are probably foraging in the top 40 meters of the water column. So one of the things we want to do in the next few years is to get the hook pod to open at 40 meters, because I think in some of these deeper set fisheries around the world, um, you'll probably never wipe it out because there'll always be the one that, that might go, right, you know, right. lower. Um, but I think you could have quite a significant reduction impact on, uh, yeah, the potential for, for turtle and, and penguin. But at the moment, because those things are able to get past the point where the pod would open, it's not something uh, that we would would kind of claiming now. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's where my mind went. I was like, OK, so that's great for flying birds. But what about the swimming birds? That are going to be going yeah. deeper. That's, and I got it just as a tangent. This is funny because we never get, we've never gotten a chance to talk about penguins on this show, but it just makes me think back to when I worked at the aquarium. It's amazing how many people don't realize that penguins are birds. I uh, just want to throw that out there. It's kind of hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> really, <laughs> you'd be surprised. A lot of people think that they're mammals. It's there are some really unintelligent people out there. They just <laughs> throwing it out there. I used to I used to love the story that they used to tell in the Falklands when because uh, obviously the the kind of British military were down there with quite a big base and quite a lot of airplanes and stuff, and there used to be a within the the military kind of community down there there used to be this story, and they used to say that when you went to the penguin colonies if one of the fighter jets went over all the birds would look at it and fall over backwards, and I have to say it doesn't happen it urban myth. <laughs> It's hilarious. So I know you're not necessarily like the engineer of the hook pod, but I'm curious about the mechanism behind like what are what's the obstacle to getting it to open at 40 meters? Like what are, what's the mechanics behind getting right now getting it to open at 10 meters and 20 meters and then what needs to happen in order to program it to open at 40 meters? Um it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's more a case of trial and error, really, because it's all about the composition and the density of the spring. So obviously, it takes a lot less pressure to squash something that's quite a springy metal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get quite a tight coil, well, not that it's not to do with the coil, it's to do with the density of the metal. That the denser that metal becomes, the more pressure it will take to compress it to the point where the piston contacts to open the device. So it's um, it's not really com- well. I say it's not complicated engineering, but. <laughs> I didn't invent the It's not part. a complicated uh, theory. <laughs> yeah, in theory, it should be quite straightforward. I think the deeper it goes, um, our engineer has said, the more likely you are to have that that slightly bigger kind of, you know, three to four meters either way, um, just because it becomes less of an exact science as the more the more pressure goes on that spring. Yeah, potentially you might need to like have a larger chamber too to fit a denser spring in there too. So then it would be a little more cumbersome. And I can, I can imagine that. Interesting. So how long, how long do they last? Because it's, you know, I mean, any, any mechanical device, regardless of the material being exposed to seawater uh, regularly for a long time, long periods at a time, you know, is going to start to break down. So how long do these generally last? Have you, have they been out long enough that you can even measure that? Yeah, so in terms of the the durability, we've had them out in New Zealand for at least two and a half years. The entire thing is made of a really um, tough polycarbonate, and all of the metal parts are marine grade stainless steel. So one of the reasons it's taken us it's taken about nine years of R and D and constant trialing to get this to the state it is now. Um, so whilst it might kind of it looks like quite a simple piece of kit, there's actually a lot of work that's gone into all the individual parts. So we're we're pretty confident, really, that the opening mechanism will carry on. Um, with all these things, you are going to get the odd one that um, doesn't open for whatever reason. Um, but it's it's pretty reliable and pretty durable. So we're in in tests. Whenever it's been tested, it's more than ninety nine point five percent carry on. So if you've got 
you know, if you're using a thousand, you're looking at kind of five, I think it is isn't every time. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. And it, it's so one thing you didn't mention is the you got two types for people who may be interested in, in purchasing these for their fleet. The regular the hook pod LED and the hook pod mini. What is the benefit to having an LED light on it just so you can kind of see where your hooks are? Um, no, it's actually got a real um, practical fishing application. And a lot of the pelagic longline fleet use little light sticks, which are the, you know, just like the kids' glow stick kind of things you have at parties. Yeah, but they come with a little clip and they'll bait the hook. Um, They will then put the glow stick on, clip it on with a little swivel onto the line and it sinks down with the gear. And what that does is it'll attract um, small marine invertebrates. That in turn pulls in small fish and it just creates movement around that hook. And basically, it's that movement and that kind of biological activity in the water that then pull in your big predatory fish. So the light doesn't attract the tuna or the swordfish, but it will actually attract things that that will then be attracted to. So it's got a very practical application for a fisherman. And if they're using those uh, light sticks, the hookpod LED will actually pay for itself on the, the, the current cost. It'll be paid for. Uh, within kind of like three to four months because those light sticks are you know anywhere between 10 to 20 cents a a unit and And they're one-time use yes they're one-time use so you've got the issue of the finance for the fishermen but you've also got the bigger issue of course of of ocean plastic um it's estimated i think the last figure i had was about nine billion of those going into the ocean every year so if we can have something being used and contained within a unit which is completely recyclable, um, all of the parts of the hook pod, apart from some of the silicon O-rings, completely can be used in another device. In the, the plastic's all recyclable. The lead weight will be used again and never comes into contact with the seawater. It's totally contained in the polycarbonate. Um, yeah, the whole thing really is recyclable. So that plastics issue is massive. And just to be able to say, well, you know, that in itself, if all the boats that were longlining and using those light sticks if they could use hook pod led instead then that's quite a big issue solved yeah there you go and yeah so then it's... who would the hook pod mini be for um a lot of fishermen don't like using lights um it's okay. a bit of a a kind of it's very much sort of skipper's choice it depends on the geography uh some places it depends on the time of year and in some places it's actually regulated against so some fisheries they won't allow you to use lights because it increases things like shark bycatch for example oh, okay Um, And in some places, it's just down to where skippers feel it's beneficial or not. It's probably, um, from what I can gather, and it's quite hard to get an exact figure on this, but I'd say it's something like probably 40 to 45% of the fleets in the world use lights, and then 50 to 55 kind of percent don't. Okay, so it's nice to have those options because something for everybody. Maddie, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did you have a question? No, I was just going to make a comment about how that's interesting because I don't personally have any experience with the fishing industry. So I don't know a lot of these things like the LED light. I had no idea. So it's just so interesting that not only can this help save seabirds, but it's also helping alleviate ocean plastics. So it's doing two major things, which are huge issues in the seafood industry right now and helping alleviate both of them. It's amazing. Right. And how secure generally are they to the line? Like what, you know, what is the chance that it could come off and and get lost at sea? Has that, have we seen, have you seen that happen at all? Is that dependent on the strength of the line? Really? Um, Yeah. I mean, if you lose your whole branch line or a section of your main line, which is 
very occasionally you'll get things like a whale entanglement or another vessel will go across and take the main line out. Yeah. And obviously that's going to happen whatever gear you've got on. That's yeah. nothing to do with the hook pod. Right, right, right. In terms right. of the hook pod coming off an individual branch line, I've not ever known that actually happening. There's been the odd one that's been smashed, uh, in, like in um, very odd circumstances where it's been, for some reason, pinged really hard against the metal of the hull. Okay. And it's literally, it's, it's shattered. Uh, but it doesn't really ever come off the line because there's a locking collar at the top that the, the branch line goes through, which then switches into place to hold it on. And then it goes through um, like a lug at the bottom. So it's completely... Uh, retained against the line it'd be very difficult for it to come away yeah and if you do look on the website you can get a pretty good visual of how it is connected to the hook and it, it does look really secure i was just curious if that's something that you would possibly run into and then the other thing you i didn't even think about this until you started mentioning turtle in- encounters would it ever be possible that something like a turtle with a strong bite force would be able to to break this thing if it tried to eat it <laughs> you know yeah i mean we've made them pretty strong but yeah. if you get something like a um a shark or a turtle that there's the potential for it to be it to be broken yeah um when it's on the line and the hook has deployed obviously when the gear sinks in the hook is retained in the bottom of the hook pod so it's like all together but then when that hook falls out the fishermen normally have the hook pod set about a meter above the hook so even if something came along to take the hook it's not really anywhere near it the hook pod's kind of clear of that. So okay, cool. again, it's not something that tends to happen often. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just, these are the things that are going through my mind, you know? <laughs> and like Maddie so, said, cool. we're still learning a lot about fisheries and, and, and how they work. You know, I went to school for aquaculture and fishery tech, but that was, you know, 12 years ago that I finished up. So <laughs> I can't really say I remember too much about my fisheries courses because uh, I haven't actually worked out on boats. So I hope that doesn't take away from our credibility on the show, but um, you know, we're, we're, it's exciting for us to learn these different techniques and these different things that are being utilized in the, in the industry. So Maddie, go ahead. Similar to what we were just talking about with like how different animals could impact the hook pod. I'm wondering if there's any impact of weather, like since it, it's based off of pressure and the water pressure does different like weather storms and things have any impact on the pressure which would then impact the opening mechanism no and that's one of the beauties of the hook pod it's one of the advantages it's got over the existing kind of mitigation measures that are used it's completely irrespective of whether it will go into the water it will open at the same depth water pressure at depth is a complete constant and it doesn't have any impact on retrieving or setting the gear so it's not going to make it more difficult if there's a wind or anything like that which is is brilliant and one of the things i was going to say um a little bit earlier and then we we kind of the conversation went a different way but the the current mitigation measures that that people use there's a really good kind of combination of these tory lines these streamers that go out over the gear and just literally act like a little shield to keep birds away. Um, And they have to go to a certain extent behind the boat. So obviously they have to have aerial height and kind of coverage. But if they're used properly, they can be really effective, you know. And if you've got weights on the gear to make it sink and you've got this kind of aerial coverage over that area of sinking, that's a really good way of keeping birds off your gear. But one of the big issues with Tory lines is the minute you get those bad weather conditions, the minute you start to get a crosswind, you get things tangled up, you get mm-hmm. breakages, and nine times out of ten, and I mean, who wouldn't, being a skipper of a boat, you're not going to put your crew in danger, 
and you're not going to lose your line. So what are you going to do? You know, you're going to say, right, get the get the bird scaring line up. And I think, you know, we, we've got nothing against. I, I seem to spend a lot of my life going, oh, this is better than anything else. But I think all the hook pod does is it just gives you that little bit of um, just reliability in whatever condition. And it means you don't have to worry if, you know, you, you want to set your lines an hour before dusk or whatever. And there's birds around. You can go ahead and do that. I, I, I'm really all about giving fishermen the choice to use something that works for them. And I think this does. This is a, a great product. And I'm really, really excited about its potential. And, I, and it seems to be really successful so far. But I'm curious, what are some of the challenges with it? You know, what is the next step that you want to try and improve with it? Because I'm sure there's always room for improvement with any, anything that anyone does. So what are some of the challenges that you faced when you were first developing it? And I know that, that kind of the de- designing the mechanism, the pre- pressure-based mechanism to, to work uh, through trial and error was one of the bigger challenges. But what are some of the challenges that you're still kind of facing with it that you're looking to address as you continue to develop? The product. Our biggest challenge at the moment, so as just a company really, is, is take up. We just need more people to be using this because yeah. obviously until we've got some kind of scale of production, we're buying small amounts of all the little bits and it's all really expensive and it's hard to get that, uh, you know, just get the whole thing up and running. But in terms of the actual product and what we'd like to do with it moving forward, we've got one that opens at 10 meters. We've got one that opens at 20. That can have a light or it can be you know, just the, the the hook pod mini. So we've already potentially got four models, but it's been designed to work with those fisheries in the Southern Oceans that mainly overlap with albatross. And actually, I think we're starting to realize that there's a lot of Northern Hemisphere fisheries. There's a lot of Mediterranean fisheries where there's big impacts on shearwaters, but they're using a slightly smaller range of hooks. Um, so the hook pod will work with the majority of big um you know, tuna, swordfish, mahi-mahi. Mm-hmm. It'll work with the majority of those hooks. Once you start getting into different um, different fisheries, and particularly Northern Hemisphere, those hooks are a little bit smaller, and they don't always, they're not retained in the base of the, the pod right. as securely. So we want to make the aperture at the bottom smaller so that we have one that will work in the north. And we also want to do what we were talking about with the 40-meter opening. Yep. So immediately, that sort of starts, I think, that kind of it will bring us on to kind of having eight or, or 12 models oh, eventually yeah. to fit with any fishery. And um, one of the other things we've had quite a bit of feedback from fishermen saying, well, okay, it's got a green light in it at the moment because that's the most commonly used light. And it's a fairly simple thing, but it would be great to be able to offer fishermen a white light or maybe a flashing light or, you know, something that they felt brought a real commercial advantage or they'd like to try or, yeah, you know, yeah. just. So, yeah, a little customization, also, you know, yeah, there's also, I think, um, potentially uh, a possibility for it to be used in the future with some kind of electronic monitoring cameras on boats and things are a lot of the way that the, the world is now going. And obviously, with the one with the LED, it has a circuit board on. So there has the potential for that to somehow record the number of times it was opening or the setting length or the depth or you know, things like that, if it were needed or required. Yeah, that's definitely a trend that we're seeing in a lot of, o- of ocean engineering and ocean um, ocean technology is it's all about data. Anything anything that you can get that can collect any kind of data is proving to be useful to people. So yeah, I think that's cool. 
So that's kind of, you know, we talked about what's next. That's usually our, our one of our last questions is, you know, what's next on there? Does HookPod have any visions for any other additional products or are you going to kind of continue to develop and, and push this to get it out in the industry more? So we have a sister company called Fish Tech Marine, which is it's got the, the two inventors, Pete and Ben Kibble, who are the brothers, and they do a whole range of really cool stuff. So they make a range of pingers that keep dolphins and cetaceans away nice. uh, from fishing gear. They are investigating various net lights. Um, they're working at the moment really excitingly on a thing called a shark guard, which will deter shark away from uh, preying from, you know, either fish on lines or getting tangled up. So, um, yeah, they they are doing the kind of range of other stuff. And at HookPod, um, as I say, we're, we're really not big. I mean, you, you introduced me as the CEO, but basically uh, this is this is it. And then I've got... A couple of people that kind of, we have a chap, Steve, who works for us in New Zealand a couple of days a week. And I have a colleague, Ben, in Tasmania, who maybe does one, two, sometimes three days a month. So we are not a big company and we're very much focused on the hook pod. And we probably wouldn't envisage doing anything else other than trying to, you know, develop the hook pod line and, and really encourage the uptake. That's the big thing for the next few years. What is the strategy to kind of increase that uptake? Are you speaking with companies that have large fleets out in the ocean or are you trying to connect specifically with independent fishermen or kind of what's your <laughs> what's your tactic uh, in that regard? <laughs> Pretty much anything we can, <laughs> any point. Um, no, one of the <laughs> things we've been working on <laughs> and focusing on in the last couple of years, uh, which is what brought me to the um, Seafood Expo North America, uh, is trying to get that power of the consumer and the seafood retail chain. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount of people and companies involved in the purchase processing and onward retail of, of tuna and we're trying to work with all of those companies to encourage best practice on the water so at the same time as doing that we also talk to anyone who's a direct fisherman and we are working through the regional fishery management organizations to encourage the regulations to get adopt uh, so hookpod can be used as a standalone measure mm -hmm. and we're also working with any NGOs we can that might be doing projects and things, that is including people who are working within fishery improvement programs. Um, yeah, any way we can really at this point in time. So half of it is just about awareness, which is why it's great to have the chance to come and talk to you guys. Um, but half of it is about a little bit of leverage needed to get demonstration projects in those fisheries to give fishermen confidence that it works. Very cool. That's fantastic. And we are so happy to give you this platform because this is such an amazing product. And I feel like there's just so much potential savings in multiple different arenas that there's the potential for people to have, for fishermen to have. So final question for you. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to get out there while you are on the show? Is there any other points about hookpod or seabirds that you want to get out there? while you're on oh the million dollar question <laughs> this is awful isn't it because you know what you've done to me now you're gonna hang up and i'm gonna go oh god i didn't ask that that's how um, that's how it always happens you yeah. always think of something <laughs> once it's over <laughs> yeah no i don't think there is really just other than yeah i guess if you're out there listening and you work for a fishery then uh, give us a call because a lot of the things i think the big point i want to get across is a lot of people are put off because of cost and you change anything and it comes with a cost and worry about the implication moving forward. 
I think we are in a world where things are changing so quickly and environmental costs are soon going to be looked at in the same light as financial costs. Uh, so if you are buying your tuna now from a fishery where they're catching even 20 albatross a year, you know, it doesn't sound like big numbers. But if you suddenly do the do the maths and you work out that that species got a value of, you know, maybe 8000 per individual then actually what you'd be spending on a set of hook pods to prevent that, it very soon equates. Um, and I don't think it sounds like a, a daft sort of proposal, but I don't think we're actually that far away from seeing that offsetting carbon and climate change things. It, it's a regular way that we're looking at it. I really don't feel like that the the seafood world is that far away from some kind of financial uh, balancing on some of those environmental impacts. And I think when that happens, then the hook pod will be... Um, yeah, it'll be a win-win. Amazing. So then if we have listeners who are in the industry and, and would like to contact you or learn more about the product or maybe uh, make a purchase or anything like that, what's the best way for them to do that? Is that the website? There is an email address on the website. I'm really happy if anyone wants to get directly in touch with me, uh, which is just becky at hookapod.com. Uh, but yeah, the website's got a load of info and lots of different things that, that, that you can find out there. Uh, yeah, but definitely have a have a look and get in touch we we are always delighted to hear from anyone awesome and that website is hookpod.com very simple just like it sounds we'll link to it in the show notes as well so you don't need to go anywhere you can just find it right from us i think with that i just want to say becky thank you so much for coming by the booth and introducing yourself and showing us the product and agreeing to come on to the show we like we said it's an amazing product i think it has tons of potential and i think what you're doing is just really great and we really appreciate it so thank you for everything yeah Thank you for coming on the show, but also for the incredible work that HookPod is doing. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you guys. Folks, that was our conversation with Becky Ingham of HookPod. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And I hope if you think that this is going to be a product that would be beneficial to you if you're a fisherman or you work in the fisheries industry, I highly recommend you check it out. It's really just better for everyone, for the environment, for the fisheries. It's For it, all it's a parties no, involved. It's a no-brainer. So please just check out HookPod.com or contact Becky or contact us and we can connect you. I, I highly recommend you take a look at it. But before we sign off, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to make sure you get all those new episodes directly downloaded onto your device as soon as they become available. And you can follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. Or if you're interested in letting us know about a topic that you'd like us to cover or a person you'd like to interview, or if you want to sponsor the show, then you can contact us globalseafood.org slash podcast. That's right. And again, if you don't mind, we would love it if you would take two minutes and go to whichever podcast platform you use, whatever player you use, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and just give us a quick rating and review because it really helps us spread the word and get into the ears of just more listeners to grow the community. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Adios. Oh, switched it up. <laughs>